You're listening to The RN Mentor, a podcast designed to document and bring you the work and experience of some of the most influential nurses in our profession. We will be sitting down and having a discussion with the leaders of today's nursing world as they share their work, how they navigate their nursing path, and their views on the future of the profession. My name is Ali Tayeb. I am a registered nurse, United States Navy veteran, a Jonas Veterans Healthcare Scholar, and your host for The RN Mentor. And welcome to another episode of the RN Mentor Podcast. I am greatly honored today to be joined by Dr. Garrett Chan. Uh, he is the president and CEO of Health Impact, the California Designated Nursing Workforce and Policy Center, and associate adjunct professor at the University of California, San Francisco. Dr. Chan's scholarship and policy work has focused on palliative care and emergency nursing, advancing advanced practice RN scope of practice and education and nursing workforce strategies and development. Dr. Chan has also been working with academic institutions, healthcare systems, policy organizations, and governments internationally to create the role and educational standards for advanced practice nursing in those countries. His current scholarship focuses on bridging the academic practice gap through innovative teaching and learning methodologies and curriculum redesign, health policy and workforce strategies, workforce development, and understanding the social determinants of health and employment of newly licensed nurses. Dr. Chan serves on the California Board of Registered Nursing Advanced Practice Registered Nurse Advisory Committee and the Nursing Education and Workforce Advisory Committee and the American Association of Colleges of Nursing Health Policy Advisory Committee. Dr. Chan is a fellow in the Academy of Emergency Nursing, Palliative Care Nursing, National Academy of Practice, Clinical Nurse Specialist Institute, American Association of Nurse Practitioners, and the American Academy of Nursing. Welcome to the show, Dr. Chan. Thank you so much, Dr. Tayeb. Those are some committees with really long names that you sit on. So hopefully uh, you have you have like cheat notes every time somebody asks you, so which committees do you sit on? <laughs> yeah, it's quite a long list of uh, names and titles, but at the end of the day, I'm a nurse and I'm just so pleased to be here with you. Great, thank you. Thank you, I know you're busy and thank you for sharing your time with us. Um, well, uh, there's a lot I want to talk to you about, uh, but as always with all my guests, we'll get started. How did you decide to go into the profession of nursing? <laughs> you know, Dr. Tayeb, it's really funny. Um, as I've gone through my many years of nursing, I've uh, asked the same question of many people. And um, my story is quite funny, actually. Um, when I graduated from high school, I didn't quite know what I wanted to do. So I enrolled in a local community college and um, I decided that I really enjoyed the arts and the humanities. And so at a certain point in time, I thought, you know what, I wanna become a curator of a large museum. So at the end of the second year in this particular community college, we were required to go to uh, see a career counselor. 
because if we weren't graduating or transferring, they really wanted to figure out how to expedite that so that they can accommodate more students coming in. So I wasn't quite ready to graduate or transfer in, uh, at the end of my second year. And so I went in to see my career counselor. And so I walked into her office and um, it was an older woman. She was very wrinkled, very tan. Um, <laughs> she had white hair pulled up straight into a tight bun at the top of her head. And I sat down and she asks me, what do you wanna do? <laughs> the million dollar question for everybody right exactly what do you want to do when you grow up exactly in that very raspy voice and i if i think about it and i look back and i if i had the wherewithal to look at her fingers she was probably all tar you know coated <laughs> and um so i said to her i want to be a curator of a large museum and she continued in the voice that I will not uh, uh, recreate. She said to me, there are no jobs and you need to get a PhD in order for you to work in any of the big museums. And I thought to her, or I thought to myself, well, I am not gonna get a PhD and uh, I better find a profession or do something that I'll be able to find a job. And so I said, oh, and she looked at me and she asks, do you like science? And I was thinking in my head, did you look at my transcript? I had not one science course on my transcript. I had taken advanced Spanish and beginning French and, you know, arts and the humanities and art history. I'm like, uh, yeah, I, I, I like science because I remembered my high school chemistry and biology teachers who were amazing, amazing people. And I said, sure, I like science. Then she asks, do you like people? I said, yeah, I like people, people are fine. <laughs> and she then asks, well, how about a nurse? And I thought, hmm, my father um, at the time was an optometrist for Kaiser. And my sister and I, after school, would go see him in his clinic sometimes. And these nurses were these nice ladies who sat at a desk and they stamped papers. Remember those way back when they had this purple addressograph, you know, ink roll, and it would go, <laughs> it's like, I can stamp papers. <laughs> I can be nice to people. <laughs> and I said, sure, why not? So she opens this drawer that she had at the side of her desk and she pulls out this yellow piece of paper and I can remember it so clearly. It was probably 10 point font front and back. On one side, it said, you know, describe nursing. On the other side, it described all the prereqs that you had to take. And I looked at that list and I thought, oh my gosh, I don't have one class <laughs> on this list. <laughs> I have two years of prerequisites to do. <laughs> yes. I said, uh, okay. So given that I was kind of like more quote unquote senior at the, at the community college, I, I was able to get all of my classes with the exception of statistics. So I took, you know, psychology and anthropology and anatomy, physiology in the labs, micro, et cetera. Um, and so I thought, okay, so I just, within one year, I was able to get all my prereqs done, fortunately. Um, and then I decided I wanted to, well, I was going to transfer and I, applied to several community, uh, excuse me, California State University campuses. 
And I decided I wanted to go to San Jose State University. So I applied and I got in and um, they sent me a letter and they said, congratulations, um, you got into the program. However, because we're an impacted program, um, you cannot start nursing courses for another year. And so you have to take classes in residence. Said, so, oh, okay. So the only class I had to take was statistics was that was left with my prereqs. And I had all my undergraduate courses all done, completed. Um, and so I thought, you know, I had taken four years of uh, Spanish in high school and then two years of advanced Spanish in, in um, the community college, but I always wanted to learn French. And I had taken two uh, years of beginning French and I thought, I want to study French and I want to study nursing. So let me apply to this international program at San Jose State um, to find a program that was, would teach me um, nursing in French. And so I applied and I got a got matched to the University of Montreal, which is one of the largest French speaking universities outside of France. And I picked up and I went for a year and I studied nursing and French and you know, psychology and all my patients were French speaking. And, you know, you probably know this, but, you know, college foreign languages really are about travel, right? And here I'm trying to take care of patients with diabetes and depression. And so um, I did well, I got all C's and a B. I felt very good about that. And um, that was my first entry into nursing. And then I finished my program at San Jose State, got my bachelor's there. And my faculty decided, you know, when I was in my bachelor's program, they said, you need to go on, you need to get your master's degree. I'm like, I'm not going to get my master's degree. And they said, you got to get it. And I said, okay. <laughs> so I went on to UCSF, got into the master's program as a clinical nurse specialist in emergency trauma and critical care. My master's faculty said, you need to get a PhD. I thought, I'm not going to get a PhD. They said, you've got to get a PhD. I said, okay. So I um, entered into the PhD program and I studied under Dr. Patricia Benner. Oh, wow. For those people who know Dr. Benner, she uh, did work 40 years ago, novice to expert skill acquisition. Although my PhD was in palliative care in the emergency department because she had a small uh, window of palliative care work that she was doing. Um, and I finished my PhD and then I did a postmasters um, acute care nurse practitioner. And that kind of is my educational history. Wow. That's amazing. Uh, like I would have, uh, I'm, I'm guessing you have a knack for languages and that's why that whole a trip to uh, Montreal and all that stuff kind of worked out for you because otherwise you know, like that would be, I mean, nursing is hard enough, but to do it in another language when it's not your native language, I mean, that's, <laughs> Yeah, that's quite it, an undertaking. It's tough. And, you know, that's why I have such um, uh, empathy for people who are entering into nursing with English as their second language, because I did it in another language. And so um, I really have um, supported nursing, nursing students specifically yeah. uh, for whom English is a second language, because I understand how hard it is. Yeah. Uh, and, and it's, um, you, you bring out, you bring up a great point and I, and I, just because you brought it up, I want to discuss a little bit with you, um, looking at some other courses and I always struggle with this and I've had to change my own mindset of how I approach these situations. 
we do have um, English as second language in all levels, right? Undergraduate, graduate, doctoral studies, but there's so much emphasis on writing in the graduate and doctoral programs. And we have, and the, the work is evaluated many times by English first language faculty, right? Uh, and the expectation that when the, the writing doesn't necessarily match what the perception of how it should be, um, it automatically discounts the work of those students in those programs, right? Because automatically they think they must not know what they're, where they're, but I think it should be reversed where you're like, what is the content, right? And where is the work? And that's where the value is. Not so much, did you get the sentence grammatically correct? So what's your thought on that? Because I know you've done some work with workforce development and nursing education, things like that. What should be, this is like sort of a loaded question. What should be like our approach when we do have second language or uh, English second language students? Well, like how do we, how do we get faculty to, look more at the content versus grammatical stuff where I know there's faculty that might be listening to this. So like, I'm sure I'm, I'm creating some, um, some worded emails as I'm saying this, uh, but how do we get those faculty to come on board but to look at the content and understanding versus um, grammatical and APA and stuff like that, which is just takes a lot of practice. Yeah, that's a great question. Um... Ali, and I think one of the things just in education in general is to be very clear about what is the competency at the end of the day. Right. You know, I think we're now in a time um, where we're moving not so much away from, I don't want to say that we that we're moving away from knowledge acquisition as being the mark of nursing education, um, we have to have knowledge. There is no doubt that we have to have that. You know, as we're looking at new things like the American Association of Colleges of Nursing, the new essentials document that came out last year um, around competency-based education, and we're looking at the next generation NCLEX exam, where there's going to be more emphasis on clinical reasoning. I think the nursing education community writ large is really thinking about the concept of, you know, what are the skills and competencies, competencies being the knowledge skills and behaviors or knowledge skills and aptitude or attitude, um, whatever the third domain is, uh, how people might um, define competency, is that I think that will help us kind of expand or open the aperture if we can use a camera, you know, uh, analogy is opening up the lens wider to understand how we can actually be more inclusive and more diverse in how we're evaluating competence for our students, whether they're in the pre-licensure program or at the graduate level, right? So, you know, Yes, it is difficult for some people to master English as a language. It is a very complex language. I mean, there are far more um, 
rules in the specifically like the romance language like italian spanish french portuguese um, where it makes it easier to construct a sentence english has all these rules that we break all the time and many words have multiple meanings and sometimes right. contradictory meanings um you know uh so that it it makes the mastery of the language kind of difficult um, but if I were to think about some competencies, like can somebody construct an argument and talk about the pros and the cons and communicate that in a coherent way, it doesn't have to be in the right. perfect way, you know, then constructing an argument um, and justifying that with the evidence, you know, does the grammar have to be absolutely correct? Well, it does if you're going to publish something. However, if you're going to just demonstrate the competency of that constructing an argument, understanding both sides, bringing the evidence in to support each side of the argument, then do we have to worry so much about APA formatting? I don't think we do. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, from how much of this has to do, because, you know, uh, just like in, academia is very much reflective of the nursing workforce overall, where we are very um, a white female dominated profession to begin with. Um, how much of this has to do with how we are hiring in institutions of higher learning, right? Like especially the the big universities, right? Like how are we doing that? And are we hiring? Do you think we're hiring the right way or are we just looking at it? Because if you look at some of the universities, if you're, if you're not a postdoc, uh, NIH funded, blah, 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 they're not even going to look at you. Uh, this, the, despite all the other work that you may have done, right? That's kind of like the focus. And how much of that, of that do you think is influencing those, the, those people in the nursing workforce that are looking to, that have other contributions other than, you know, for example, being able to go into a postdoc where everything is very um, writing centric, which, which is important as part of how we, how we communicate the science, right? Uh, but are we, are we actually pushing some people away by being so concentrated on things like grants and dollars? And how much is, do you think that that's impacting the diversity of faculty we're bringing in into the, into the education area? Yeah, there have been some uh, studies. Um, I don't have a specific reference off the top of my head right now, but it has been shown that it, you know, faculty of color really have struggled in what we call the R1 institutions. So R1 is a designation that says it's very research intensive. Um, the, we have to think about, I think one of the things is the, con the concept that there's a place in this world for everyone. You just have to find the right place, right? So if somebody is interested in, let's say, an R1 institution where it's heavy research, you know, we should figure out how to create support systems to mm. um, be clear about how to support people into get, get, getting into a job in an R1 institution. I think 
one of the challenges kind of in general, whether it's in a practice setting or whether it's in academia, is the concept of the hidden curriculum or the hidden agendas. And the more that we can just be really honest about the the things that that particular institution is concerned about or values, what's the quote unquote currency of, of that particular institution, whether again, it's a clinical job or whether it's a academic job, the more that we can help figure out how to create those support structures to, you know, elevate um, anybody who is interested, regardless of, I'm going to say this, regardless of race or ethnicity or other dimensions of diversity, right? So we think about things like in an R1 institution, whether it is true or not, I've heard people say, well, it's about the number of publications you have and it's the number of grant dollars you bring in. Okay, so if that is the case, and that's how people go through the ranks, get first get (laughs) recognized that they belong in an R1 institution, and how do they progress from associate, excuse me, assistant to associate to full professor, you know, how do we create these support, um, you know, networks to help people along that journey? Now, if you're gonna go to a predominantly teaching institution, then we have to be clear about, well, what are the values of a teaching institution? What, you know, student evaluations, well, that's really important. So how do you engage students and how do you ensure that learning is happening? And how do you ensure that we're creating inclusive and uh, and diverse environments um, for teaching? How do we support neurodiversity um, for people who are learning from, from perhaps they have a learning um, uh, challenge. And so how do we create those, those support networks for that? Yeah. So yeah. I think it just goes to show you, and then again, is the pinnacle of success, you know, these teaching awards, right? And, um, and is it less data-based publications? So I think we have to be clear and expose the hidden agendas. And that right. way we have people elevated um, to where they need to um, be elevated so that they can be successful. Uh, that's a great point. Uh, just because um, the reason I, I bring it up is because we do see you know, uh, the IOM report, Future of Nursing, the 2010 report that came out really opened up the so I didn't really open up the gates for the PhD program because the, our PhD numbers have stayed fairly flat as far as growth, uh, which is, I think, one issue we need to address at some point because, um, well, we can talk about that later, but, but it really opened up some floodgates on the DNP program. And that's where we really saw an increase. And you mentioned, the reason I bring this up is because you mentioned support systems. And I think nursing didn't really, although they created this, these programs where we had all of a sudden we were able to create the DMP graduates, uh, we kind of failed in a couple of areas, I want to say. This is just my personal perspective on this is, first of all, we didn't create the PhD support system 
Uh, I don't think we did enough financially because both of those programs are expensive. I think we could have done a lot more over there. Uh, and we didn't, from a DMP perspective, we didn't create the role after the DMP, right? Uh, and I think a lot of people like went, they got their DMPs and they're back in the exact same role doing the exact same thing. And I've had this conversation with a few people. I'm like, how do we not see beyond? Uh, let's, let's have more doctoral level uh, nurses out there. Um, and then where do we fall short perhaps on the PhD world? Because now these days PhDs aren't enough either. Now you need a postdoc, right? So in order to really, you know, be competitive and that that's another barrier for people to go into a PhD program and expensive as it is, now you have to take an additional pay cut to go to usually a postdoc fellowship, right? Um, so from from you've you've done I'm sure you've done a, you, you've had these conversations yourself in the role that you're that you're at. Uh, where do we fall short, or was that ever part of the plan, uh, or is something we're working on now? Yeah, those are great questions, Ali. And let me um, take a couple things. Uh, let me split the question up in a couple different ways. Um, I think one thing uh, that um, we need to think about in terms of PhD education. Let's start there. Is I think we need to continually demystify science. I think people think, oh, science is so hard. Science takes so long. So when you're kind of butting up against those kind of perceptions, I think that limits people you know, the number of people who are actually interested in, you know, um, generating new knowledge. So um, when we think about the PhD programs, part we don't see an increase really in the number of people who are entering into a PhD program. I think there's some things that we can do to, again, demystify and uh, make more clear what are the end results that we're expecting to see people attain when they get a PhD. And so things we could think about are, you know, well, we do want you to um, learn the nuances and the mechanics of science, right? But can the research projects, because I've, I've seen this and I've been on many PhD committees where sometimes the faculty will want to push the student to really do significant groundbreaking work, which is takes a lot of effort and a lot of resources to do, right? Right. And it's like, well, is it really that we're expecting them to do groundbreaking research or is it that they're trying to learn and master the skills and the process of scientific inquiry? And does the research study have to be so huge <laughs> to, to do that? Um, and there's this competitiveness sometimes um, around that. And I'm not saying that you can't just do a single small survey study because that wouldn't necessarily meet the criteria, I believe, kind of across disciplines because we also need to be have degree parity with other disciplines, right? Um, and the Carnegie Foundation for Teaching um, that, that's housed at Stanford has published a couple different uh, 
books on, you know, doctoral PhD education. And so we do need to make sure that we're, you're, we're kind of on par with other disciplines, but other disciplines also struggle with this too, especially in the basic sciences where you're mm-hmm. keep going, you keep going, you keep going until you find a meaningful result. Um, so I think in general, we need to really think about what is the PhD? What does it mean? What are the skills that you ha- get you know, at the end of the PhD? And how long does it take to right. do that, right? Yeah. Um, moving more towards the DNP, I have been a staunch supporter of the DNP um, uh, since 2006 when it first came out. And for a couple of reasons. One is that, again, talking about parity, um, you know, to get a master's degree in really any other field, you only need about 30 to 36 units, right? Um, be them semester or, or quarter units. And when we look at our master's programs in nursing, especially the advanced practice master's programs, they're at 60, 90, 100 units. And so to get a PhD in clinical psychology, you only need 90 units. So we don't really have, in, in my opinion, we don't have parity. Um, we ask our students who are going again for a master's degree in nursing to do sometimes twice or three times the amount of work that a, another person in another discipline um, is trying to attain in their master's program. So from the mere fact that we should even look at our current programs and say, you know what, we're, ex- we're expecting you to do a lot more. Um, maybe we should think about what level or of graduate degree we're conferring. Um, it's kind of something that in my mind was very important. That being said, we, know that there's been some literature out in the world about evaluating the DNP. You know, getting a DNP from one institution is not the same as getting a DNP from another institution. Sure. And so I think the discipline of nursing is really trying to come wrap their arms around that concept, right? And um, so, and I've been on DNP, committees as well. And, you know, I've seen other people in the same cohort of these, my students, you know, show up with other programs that are perhaps not as rigorous and maybe mine are too rigorous. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But my students do well and, um, and they learn what they need to learn. And so I think we need to figure out, and, and I know that the discipline is start having a lot of conversation around the, the, um, the comparability of DNP programs and starting to create, uh, even despite having the essentials for DNP education and now the new AACN essentials, there's still a lot of kind of storming, if you will, you know, thinking storming, forming, norming, that (laughs) that business concept. There's still a lot of storming in that, in that space. Prior to my arrival as the president and CEO of Health Impact, I held several senior nurse executive roles at Stanford Healthcare, which is the adult health side um, at Stanford. So for those people who may not know, there are two different and completely separate 
health systems on the Stanford campus. There's the adult side Stanford Healthcare, and then there's the Stanford Children's Health, which does all the maternal child um, healthcare. And so one of the positions that I was in uh, was as the director of advanced practice at Stanford. And I grew that the advanced practice provider group, which is an umbrella term that we use for nurse practitioner, physician assistant, clinical nurse specialist, and certified registered nurse anesthetist. Um, the, the children's side also includes midwives. We didn't employ any midwives, certified nurse midwives um, on the adult side. But um, as, I was, as I was there, we were having a lot more of our advanced practice providers um, go back for DNPs, especially the APRNs, um, specifically the APRNs. And as they were graduating, to your point, we didn't really have a space for them um, in terms of what, what we are expecting them to do because the hidden, quote unquote, hidden agenda for a health system is see more patients, increase access to care. That's, that's what we're here for, right? And you're a provider. And so now we're expecting you to see patients, right? And, and I think the whole concept around professionalism um, I raised as the director and I said, you know, to the senior executives um, and other administrators, you know, we have these people who are graduating with a DNP and here are the core competencies that we're expecting them to have as they graduate. And it includes, you know, quality improvement and performance improvement and, you know, integration of technology and things like that. And how can we create a space for these um, folks to um, use their new knowledge and advance their professional career beyond just, and I'm not saying just in, in, in a minimizing way, but beyond clinical um, encounters. Right, right, beyond their original uh, work, right? Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. So it, it took a lot of convincing and I wasn't quite successful the first go around, but I did make some incremental steps. And the first step was I, I created the career ladder um, for advanced practice providers at Stanford. And we, in this career ladder, we identified three um, categories of work that we wanted people to um, address when, when applying for this career ladder opportunity. And there were a total of th three steps. So everybody was an APP one, and then we did two, and then we had three. And with each step increase, there was a pay increase as well. And so the three different areas were clinical expertise. And we measured that by peer reviews, and then they had to write an exemplar where they felt like they gave, gave expert care. Again, being a Denner, you know, graduate, you have to talk about exemplars. <laughs> <laughs> I was about to say, I see some Benner models coming through here. That's right. Exactly. Um, the second one was institutional citizenship and leadership. And we gave credit to different um, activities that we saw the person, the advanced practice provider, contributing to the institution of Stanford Healthcare. So were they part of performance improvement projects? Were they leading performance improvement projects? 
Um, were they leading educational uh, events for the staff of, of, of Stanford, things like that. So institutional citizenship and leadership was really important. And then the third um, domain was contributions to the profession. So if they were PAs, then how did they give back to the PA profession? How did they give back to the nursing profession? And how, and then for both of them, how, how did they, we gave credit for giving back to the community writ large, right? That they organized a AIDS walk, you know, in the community, things like that. Uh, so that was advancing the profession. And so what we found was a you know, anecdotally, we found a lot of the DNPs were already kind of at a um, different level than perhaps some of our master's level uh, folks, although our master's level folks were doing amazing, amazing, amazing work. Um, and we recognized anybody who wanted to apply for the career ladder. Um, and this was the first step for us to recognize that there as an institution, that there was more to being an advanced practice provider than just being a direct care clinician. So from there, we started with uh, a, I started having conversations and uh, we did a pilot in one of the, um, in the divisions of, of Stanford, where we gave um, protected time, buyout time, mm. so that they had to come up with a project, they had to have deliverables, they had to have a timeline. And then they presented that to their manager and they presented it to the Center for Advanced Practice, um, over which I was um, the director. And everybody agreed, the, the physician, you know, leadership also agreed, the supervising physician also agreed, and then we had some carve out time for these people. And what we found was that they were doing amazing, amazing work. Again, DNP or no DNP, our APPs were doing amazing, amazing work and advancing the, the strength and the, um, the image and the contributions of Stanford um, within the institution, but also outside. And that led to a formal program that was um, expanded to all of the um, service lines um, at Stanford. And so, you know, not necessarily specific to DNP, but definitely including DNP um, graduates, this was a way for us to create a not necessarily a new role because they were still a nurse practitioner, still a clinical nurse specialist or still a PA, um, but it allowed for flexibility of the role in the organization. And, the, and a lot of, and Stanford is a lean facility. So we use the lean principles. And so they also demonstrated how much waste reduction mm. um, they had. And so those kinds of, um, uh, if we can quantify, and we're not good in healthcare generally in quantifying how much we're saving, but as we were starting to calculate that, and then the senior executives were seeing, oh, well, reduced $40,000 of waste in the system here. They're like, okay, great, keep going. <laughs> so Right, and, that, and that's difficult. That's difficult, uh, especially when a lot of institutions call those soft dollars, right? Uh, so, but, but no, but it's important that, you, that you're able to quantify that uh, in, a, in, a, in an institution because those soft dollars add up they Absolutely. definitely add up. Wow, that's great. Well, it's, it's great to see that you had a, 
uh, you're able to like build that niche uh, within the program, you know, because I, I don't I, I don't think we do enough of that or just overall in any institution, academia or or on the on the service side. So that's fantastic. Um, I, I feel like I want to talk to you for hours now around this stuff. Um, so but I want to make sure that that we we I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about your work uh, with health impact uh, with the state of California because I know uh, um, it started out with the initial uh, IOM report uh, and so kind of what work what what work were you involved with uh, and then from there uh, I know there's a new report out uh, are we doing anything with that? Yeah, that's great. So um, just a little bit of background about Health Impact. So Health Impact actually, um, we just celebrated our 20th year last year. So it um, was started in 2001 um, and the first president and CEO of Health Impact, um, it was known actually as a, uh, under a different name. So it was started out as, it started out as the California Institute for Nursing and Healthcare. Some people called it the Institute, other people called it SYNC, C-I-N-H-C. Um, and the first president and CEO was Dolores Jones. And for those people who know Dolores, she was actually, back when California Kaiser, Kaiser was in California, it was actually one region. So it had both North and South. And so she was the chief nurse for the whole California region. They have since split into the northern and the southern um, regions. Um, but she was very active. Um, she's a past president of the Association of California Nurse Leaders, um, very influential, very forward thinking. And um, the Institute uh, did a lot of work in streamlining uh, the educational highway that they called it back then for people to get you know, uh, do academic progression. So getting into nursing and then they would get off, let's say at an associate degree, but they wanted to come back for a bachelor's or go on to, for a graduate degree. So um, Dolores and her team did amazing work in trying to streamline um, the whole concept around nursing education. Um, fast forward, the second CEO, um, was Judy Berg. Um, Judy, a uh, very well-known nurse executive. Um, she was a chief nursing officer in Visalia in the Central Valley of California, um, as well as uh, Cottage Hospital, which is in Santa Barbara. And she was also the editor-in-chief of Nurse Week, uh, for those people who remember that um, publication. And honestly, I'm sorry, I don't know if it's still around, but she was the editor-in-chief <laughs> of Nurse Week, um, great visionary. And so during her tenure as president and CEO, um, they changed the, they changed, the board of directors changed the name to Health Impact to focus on uh, that the health of people living in California through nursing excellence. Um, during the, the time of Dolores Jones as being the first CEO in 2010, as you mentioned, the first Institute of Medicine Future of Nursing report came out and really was focused on, you know, improving the nursing workforce and people going on for um, uh, bachelor's and graduate degrees in nursing. And that was great. Um, and I started working actually, or volunteering for um, the Institute and that then became the um, 
health impact. And I was one of the co-leads for recommendation number one, which was to advance um, scope of practice efforts for all nurses, not just advanced practice nurses, but all nurses um, in California. And that was a heavy lift. <laughs> yeah, um, 100%. We, we live in a very political state and um, there are a lot, there's lots of money from a lot of different organizations that want to fight against nursing um, and ex, uh, advancing scope of practice and modernizing um, scope of practice. So anyway, I let, co-led this with um, Dr. Susie Phillips, who is at UC Irvine, very well-known nurse practitioner, really outstanding and smart policy person. And so we um, took on the role and we started working with different organizations to try to advance scope of practice issues um, for California. And I did that all as a volunteer. Um, so fast forward to um, the new report that came out, even though it's the future of nursing 2020, 2030, um, it, the, the the focus of the 2020-2030 uh, report has pivoted. Um, it's not so much about nursing itself. It's how does nursing uh, improve the health and well-being of communities with a significant um, eye on health equity. The commission that uh, put this together, felt strongly that nurses play an important and pivotal role in advancing health equity for all communities, especially communities that are under-resourced or underserved, communities of color. Um, and so nurses really have been on the forefront of health equity issues um, in healthcare. And so when you look at the new recommendations, there are now nine recommendations. The old report had eight recommendations. This has nine recommendations. But of the nine recommendations, there are 54 sub-recommendations that are in the report. Um, and these recommendations, again, um, tackle things like, again, access to care, um, health equity, um, dismantling structural racism issues. Um, so there are lots of things that the report is calling us to look at and help improve. Um, and how do we help nurses, nursing be on the forefront of health equity? Right. Um, now, I know um, this state, and correct me if I'm wrong, I, this is through a lot of me talking to other people. Um, the first report, uh, when it came out, because it was so much workforce-centered, um, had a lot more support from uh, the non-nursing world of like states and budget and things like that. This one, uh, you know, I, I've I've... I have to admit, I haven't read the whole thing. It's a huge document and it's written not like, like, like a, you put it down quite a bit when you start reading it, uh, just because it feels so heavy. It is a very, not from a content perspective, it feels like a very heavy lift for nursing. Uh, and I think it has some of the same issues where I felt with the first one, where it was asking a lot without the resources. And that's always an issue because nursing is already doing so much. And now we're saying, yes, I know you're doing this, but here's, 
even though we're doing some of that work, it would be, I always feel like it would be so nice if we had the financial support or the other resource that we need to get beyond the here work 40 to 60 hours a week. And by the way, can you do it just a little bit more uh, type of an ask? Um, so I know because each state has its own um, sort of coalition, um, how is the state of California looking at the new report? And um, what might be the next steps if we are looking at the new report uh, strategically? Yeah, Ali, you, you, <laughs> you bring up really important questions um, <laughs> and things that we are even now just kind of wrapping our heads around. Um, the report was supposed to have come out in 2020. And of course we know the COVID right. pandemic hit um, and it was delayed. Um, the unveiling of the report was delayed to accommodate for some of the COVID issues. And I think the, as you and other um, people have really talked about the COVID pandemic really just uh, peeled back the veneer that we thought was, you know, things are going fairly well and, you know, we'll be okay. And now it's just chaos, right? And we're living in a time of great turmoil. And so for California specifically, what I'm trying to do is just understand who is doing what already. You know, it is, the report is a clarion call for the profession. It is trying to ask nursing leaders to pay attention to things that we hadn't necessarily paid attention to before. That's not to say that we haven't already been doing things. And so what I'm working on right now is um, trying to create a database to just kind of harness and just catalog what we're already doing because maybe it's not such a heavy lift after all. There are some things that we're gonna to have to grapple with as a profession, like the about 60% or even a little bit more than 60% of all nurses work in acute care settings. Right. Right. And for a long time, since the beginning of the Affordable Care Act, and even before that, but really the Affordable Care Act putting a huge stake in the sand and saying, we need to change our healthcare delivery system to be more uh, focused on primary care, disease prevention and health promotion. That change comes very slowly, but we did know that back when the Affordable Care Act was passed, right? Right. <laughs> so it's just, this is again, another kind of reinforcement that we need to change the, our, our health indicators, you know, worldwide, we're in, you know, we're low on the list of people with, you know, living longer and healthier and better lives than other countries that are not spending as much money. Right. So the, it, you know, the Institute for Healthcare Improvement came out with the triple aim, and now there's the quadruple aim, and now they're even talking about the quintuple aim, you know, <laughs> about health equity as being the, the fifth aim. Um, so I think there's a lot of people who are passionate about this, that we've done work um, to advance it. It's a time for us to just now as a majority of the, of the profession to really now focus on it and say, 
let's do things. We don't have to make major changes. We just have to start incorporating new things and re-examining and asking ourselves questions like, is this particular policy helping everyone or is it structural racism? Right. And so, again, I don't think we need to necessarily, well, we will need to create new major initiatives, right? That's without, goes without saying. Right. There are things that each of us can do after, and the easier read is to just read the two documents. There's one that just describes the nine recommendations. There's another one that has the 54 sub recommendations. Just <laughs> read that. Right. <laughs> and, and you think, oh, you know what? In my everyday work, I think I can do this one thing. And by doing just that one thing will make things better. Right. And so it is, it's huge and it's heavy, but I think we're also doing things that is advancing health and health equity already. Oh, I appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you. Um, So I look forward to uh, seeing uh, what the health impact does moving forward. Uh, I, I'm definitely looking for uh, uh, to see uh, the first the first report got me to get into any PhD program. So this one was like, I don't know what I can do to contribute other than but but you know you as you mentioned, there's a lot of things a lot of people uh, may already be doing. It's just a matter of identifying and saying this is how I'm contributing. Uh, but then again, like I think we need to do a better job for on an individual, uh, professional basis um, in reading the report and actually seeing what it's asking. Uh, but like I said, it felt very, it felt very heavy and not as the first one said, this is what you do. And this is, this other one is more, definitely more uh, abstract. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, so. And it's very wide reaching and that's another hard part, you know, right. I, that it covers so many different things. And so that's where I go. I really point people to the what you know i think it's like a three page document or four page document that just articulates all of the sub recommendations and then just choose one yeah and you'll be fine fantastic um i want to be cognizant of your time uh anything else you want to share with it with our listeners i want to first thank all nurses around the world for your hard work during this really difficult time I think nowhere in our history have we seen the levels of misinformation and disinformation and the efforts to dismantle um, society in such a way that has caused major um, public health crisis and also crisis within the profession. These are hard times and I wanna thank everybody for their individual efforts in advancing health and health equity. And just say that, just say that I see you, I see you and I see that you're doing amazing work. And at the same time, making sure that you are paying attention to your own mental health and just take that day off and just unwind and unplug um, so that you can, you know, continue to carry on. Um, these are uh, tumultuous times, you know, in the world, um, as well as in the profession. And so um, be healthy. And even if you, d- even if you uh, decide uh, to, you know, leave direct patient care, that's okay. 
once a nurse, always a nurse, and you can make contributions in any way possible. So thank you so much, Ali, for inviting me to have this conversation with you. It's been a delight. And I want to thank you for doing this amazing work in the RN Mentor, Pod, RN Mentor podcast, because it people need to connect in different ways. And this is really a great way to connect. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Uh, and again, thank you for sharing your time. Uh, we have been listening to Dr. Garrett Chan. He is the president and CEO, CEO of Health Impact for the state of California. So thank you for joining us and we will see you again soon. You've been listening to the RN Mentor with your host, Ali Taya. Please don't forget to visit www.aliartayeb.com. That's www.aliartayeb.com for podcast notes and resources. And don't forget to subscribe. Until next time, I wish you fair winds and following seas.